0: One of the saddest stories, one of the saddest things we could read about in all of God's word are found right at the beginning, right in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden temple of God. Scripture tells us that they are driven out from there, driven out from all that they've known, driven out from the beauty and perfection of the paradise that God had placed them in. A place where they had unrestricted access to the tree of life that every time they ate of its fruit it would enable them to live forever and ever and never experience decay or death. But even more glorious than that is, is the reality that they had unrestricted access to the presence of God. Beautiful, intimate fellowship with God and because of their transgression, their sin... They're driven out. And for Adam and Eve and for all of mankind, there's no going back to the garden. And God made sure of that. Right? We're told in the story that he places his cherubim with a flaming sword to guard access to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve could not maybe find their way back and in their sinful state, continue to eat of the tree and live in that sinfulness for all of eternity. There was no going back. And creation was plunged. Into darkness. And as they're driven out of the garden. All that awaits for them. East of Eden. Is pain. And hardship. And suffering. And toil. And death. And sadness. No going back to the garden. Have you ever stopped. To maybe think a little bit about this. That all of man's quest. In all of human history. From that point forward has been an attempt to return to the glory of the garden. To fight and claw their way back to the beauty and perfection that was the garden temple of God. Every technological advancement, every new innovation, in attempt to bring alleviation from the suffering that the curse brought upon all of creation. An attempt to make our world again like the garden. Why is that? Well, I believe there's a faint echo in the heart of all of mankind, of the garden. It's there. Everyone knows that things are not as that they should be. They, they may not have context for it. They may not understand it. But everyone knows in their heart this can't be what it's supposed to be. It's Eden. It's Eden what they're longing for. Longing for things to be made right and good and perfect and pure again. Humanity wants paradise restored. Well, the good news, right, as we began looking at last week, it will be restored. It will be restored. We will have that paradise lost, but our hope is that it will be regained. Now, it won't be a return to the original. It's even better than that, right? It's more superior than that. This is like Eden 2.0. It is the ultimate upgrade to the paradise that God created for us in the beginning now i want to tease out our main point today and and for us to think about this as we go through these uh, certain portions of scripture today and it's this that eternal life in the new creation will be infinitely more glorious than you and i could ever imagine paradise lost will be paradise regained in an infinitely better garden of eden now, we're going to look at that last portion of chapter 21 and the beginning of chapter 22. So we'll take this in two parts uh, to get this final glimpse that Revelation gives us into the glories of the new heaven and the new earth. We saw last week a little bit of the exterior of the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Right? We, we analyzed its structure, its walls, its gates, its foundations, and all that that represented. And now we'll get a little glimpse of the interior uh, of the holy city, the new Jerusalem. We're going to look first at what's not present in the holy city, and then secondly, we will look at what is central to the holy city. Now, Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27, hear the words of the living God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to give shine on it, book of life. These are the words of the Lord. Now chapter 21 started with uh, the angel showing John the holy city. He tells John, he goes, let me show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And here we would expect to see people, but following in everything we've studied in Revelation, what John receives are symbols, images, pictures that shows him the bride, the wife of the lamb. But we don't see people, we see a city, the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, with glorious gates and walls and foundations and every precious gemstone. We saw the the expression of the numerical number of twelve and all that that represented uh, in the holy city and what it told us about the perfect and complete Church of Jesus Christ. Now John is shown. Inside of the holy city. And what John comes to realize here is that uh, there's something so amazing about this holy city. But it's not based on what he sees. But what he doesn't see here. And there's specifically four things that are conspicuous to John. Because they're not there. Because of their absence. So let's begin to look at those here. uh, As we read in this passage. The first is there in verse 22. I saw no temple. What John is seeing now is a holy city and all of its symbols of a city, but there's no temple in the city. Again, these aren't metaphors. These are pictures. These are symbols. And all of these things John is using to tell us something about the perfected people of God in the new heaven and the new earth. So why is it significant that there is no temple? Well, in every ancient city, regardless of its size, there usually was at least one temple there. One place of pagan worship to some god or god goddess, some deity, right? Something that was worshipped by the people. There was at least one temple in every city. Often there were multiple temples in a city, but here there isn't one. And what was the hope of the Jewish people? As they believed the promises of God given to them through all of the prophets in the Old Testament that in the last days, God was going to build this great and glorious last days temple in a new rebuilt Jerusalem. That's what they looked forward to. There was going to be a temple somehow, some way on that last day, the day of the Lord. But John, he doesn't see a temple, does he? It's not there. Why not? Well, what is a temple? Let's start by asking that. What's a temple? A temple, just kind of think of it like this, is a smaller place inside of a much larger place. A smaller structure inside of a Larger geographical location. It's a place that is set apart. Set apart for what? Worship. Sacrifices. To whom? To a god, to an idol, to some deity for worship and service. And that temple, that smaller place set apart is usually usually has its access restricted to only its adherents, to only those who are priests of that. God or goddess or, or those who serve in the temple to take care of the different functions and religious duties that are done there. Well, Israel had a temple. First, it had a tent. It had a tabernacle. And that temple, that tabernacle served a dual function for the people of God, for Israel. The first purpose of that temple was that it was the visible manifestation that God was in the midst of his people. Israel could look, right, because all of their tents surrounded the the tabernacle that was set up, the tent of meeting, and all of them could look and see, well, there's the tabernacle. That's where God is. He's in the Holy of Holies. The presence of God is there. And there was that visible manifestation of his glory, the cloud, the smoke, the fire. All of that said to them, God is here. God's in our midst. God is dwelling among us. So they could see that and know that. But the second purpose was this. That tabernacle served to insulate God's people from the consuming fire of God's holiness. No ordinary person could enter the tabernacle. That access was restricted to the priesthood. But even the most inner chamber there, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, that would fill with smoke was only reserved for the high priest, and that he'd only access one time a year after going through all sorts of ritual purification and cleansing and making atonement for his own sins and the sins of the people could he even hope to live by being in the presence of God in such a degree and manner. So it shielded them from the fire of God. Walls were put up, thick veils and curtains and sacrifices of animals, all of those things to protect them From God. You may not know this, but you need to be protected from God. Because all of humanity apart from Christ is under the wrath of God. Scripture tells us he's a consuming fire. No man can stand in the presence of God and live. So God's presence had to be mediated through this temple. And this protected God's people. Why? Because God is holy and the people were sinful. They were unclean. So this tabernacle served as a buffer between the people and the presence of God and His fiery holiness. But look what happens in the new creation. In this holy city, there's no temple. Why is that? Well, think about it. If the people needed separation from God because this temple provided that buffer from God, it was like a heat shield, right? Protecting them from that consuming fire of God. What does that say about us as a people now in the New Jerusalem, in the Holy City? We have no need of the buffer. We have no need of a temple. Why? Because we've been made pure and holy and clean just like he is. Isn't that what we've read in Revelation? We've had our our robes, our white robes, washed in the blood of the Lamb. No buffer needed. No fear of making direct contact with God and His holiness. Well, that was the fear all throughout Scripture, right? You dare not touch the ark. You guys know the story, right, of Uzzah? What did he try to do when the ark was being moved and it was on, it was on a cart and driven by an oxen? And the, and the cart was about to tip over. What did Uzzah do? He tried to grab it and lay hold of it. What happened to him? He was struck dead. He was struck dead. How could unclean hands hope to even touch this that was symbolic, a visible manifestation of God's glory, and expect to live? Think of Isaiah's vision, right? Isaiah gets this vision. His eyes are open and he sees the glory of the Lord fill the temple. But immediately what happens to Isaiah? What is he consumed by? Overwhelming fear of his utter uncleanness and sinfulness and depravity. And he's like, I am going to be killed. But God takes care of that now in a picture of the atonement. And what Christ is going to do for us. We've been made clean, right? So we won't be consumed by the fire of God's holiness. Remember in 2116, we, uh, we saw the angel measuring the holy city. And we saw that the, the measurements of the holy city, its length, its width, uh, its height, uh, all indicated that it was a perfect geometric cube. And that that was a replica of the Holy of Holies in the temple. The only other place in Scripture that we see this particular shape, this particular form. And there we said that that represented that the holy city, which is the people of God, means that the church, His people, is the temple of God. We are the temple of God. His dwelling place is with His people. His presence is with them. A fulfillment of what we saw earlier, that God said, My dwelling place will be with man. I will be their God, and they will be my people, God's presence everywhere. Now Jesus himself said that he is the temple. we have Peter writing later on saying uh, that the, uh, the that we uh, God's people are living stones in god's temple. We have Paul writing saying that the church is built as the temple of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets of whom Jesus is the chief. Cornerstone. We have all of this language in the New Testament uh, Testament indicating to us that we are the temple of God. This is why there isn't going to be a physically rebuilt temple in the new heavens and the new earth. There's no need of it. It tells us that there is no temple for the reasons we just stated. But notice how John changes the symbolism here a little bit. He kind of inverts the symbol of that aspect of the church being the temple of God because he says here there's no temple in this city for its temple is... He doesn't say the church here. He says it's the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. He's saying God is the temple for the church. The whole city, which is the people of God, is a temple now for God kind of confusing. Wait a minute. Is the church the temple for God or is God the temple for the church? Yes. (laughs) Both and. John's trying to make a point here. And it's really not a hard point when we begin to look through all of this. His point is that if you live in the holy city, if you're part of the holy city, you are automatically living in the immediate presence of Of God. He's everywhere. Whereas before you had to go. To the temple. If you wanted to worship God. Serve God. Offer sacrifices to God. You had to go to a specific geographical location. To do your business with God. There. That would mediate the presence of God. On your behalf. But here. God and the Lamb. Are the Holy of Holies. In the midst of the entire world. Because the world itself has become his temple. It's a remarkable picture. You don't need to go to the temple because God is the temple. And that temple is everywhere. His presence is everywhere dwelling with his people. What is this? This is a return to Eden. What was lost has been regained. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. He walked in the garden with them. Beloved, the, the, the perfect fellowship and union and intimacy that they enjoyed with God in the garden. Think about that. Talking with him face to face. No one in scripture apart from Adam and Eve had that experience. Moses didn't have that experience. He couldn't see God's face. And God talked with him personally. It's being recovered here. It's being restored in the new creation because the temple is absent. No walls, no courtyards, no curtains, no priests mediating for you, no inner chambers, no holy of holies, no barriers between God and his people. That means you will never again say, I don't feel the presence of God. I, I don't know if God is with me. We've all gone through those seasons of life spiritually, haven't we? Where we wonder, where are you, God? Now, we don't walk around just on subjective feelings, but sometimes it's nice to feel, right? <laughs> so, like we know, okay, God is everywhere, you know, God's with me, but we don't sense that, we don't feel that, and it affects us emotionally and, and, and then spiritually, but, but here you'll never, ever doubt that again, it will never come into question because God is the temple for the church. And the church is the temple for God. Amen. And his presence is everywhere. That's the first thing John doesn't see there. The second, he says here, is that there's no need for sunlight or moonlight. The city has no need, verse 23, of sun or moon to shine in it for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. Now, John is not making an observation here of the you know, astronomical conditions Uh, Of this cosmos, this new cosmos here. So, we're not to take it literally. Like, if you're wondering, you mean I'll never see a beautiful sunset again, or, you know, sit by the lake in the beautiful moonlight and it's shimmering on the still waters? You don't need to worry about that, all right? I, I believe we're gonna have all of that there. You don't take this literally, these are symbols. But because God's presence saturates the entirety of the environment of our eternal existence in this new world, these new heavens and the new earth, and because God's glory is always accompanied by his presence and his presence is always accompanied by his glory, they are indivisible. The resplendence of his glory renders every other light source, including the suns, irrelevant and unnecessary. Look how Isaiah describes exactly what John is seeing in this vision the 24th chapter of Isaiah, verse 23, Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. As brilliant as the light is that our sun produces... And all of the lights of the luminaries and all of the cosmos, they will all pale in comparison to the infinitely superior radiance and light of the glory of the Lamb. They don't hold a candle to it as the expression goes. Now think about it. If I were to light a beautiful, bright, sunny day today, I'm going to light a candle to light my way and go outside with that candle. Will that make any difference at all? Will that actually make things brighter as I go out and about? No, right? Because the sun is bright and and hot and shining bright in the sky. Well, that's the comparison kind of being shown to us here. Think of the light of the sun and what it produces. And that is going to be humbled before the light produced by the blazing glory of the Lamb of God. It's remarkable. The Lamb is the lamp of the holy city. That's why there's no need. For sun or moon. It's not that they're not going to be there. But their light is irrelevant in comparison to the glory of God. Notice what John says uh, is a consequence of the glory of God and the Lamb illuminating the city. Verse 24. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now this is pretty cool. The nations are there the nations are present they'll walk by the light of the lamb what does that tell me it tells me that heaven's not going to be all plain vanilla or plain chocolate <laughs> all of the nations are there every ethnicity Represented The beautiful diversity of all of creation, of the people of God, of the nations, are present there. Now, we've already seen this in chapter 7. John sees the vision of the triumphant church in heaven with the multitudes standing before the Lamb, worshiping before Him, what? From all every nation, tribe, peoples, and languages. And then in chapter 5, the Lamb ransomed with His blood people from every tribe and language and people and nations. All ethnicities are present in the holy city. We're not all going to look the same. We're not all going to be stormtrooper clones, you know, just marching together and you can't tell who's who. No. There's going to be a beautiful continuity between what we see now in the diversity of ethnicities of the nations in the new renewed creation here. All of our ethnic and cultural distinctives are going to be preserved. All of them. Because what is he seeing here? He's seeing the nations. Now, don't think nations and think United States, Canada. I don't think Canada will be there. Um, (laughs) Mexico. Don't think about geographical boundaries of nations. That's not what's in view here. It's ethnos, the ethnoi, the peoples, the people groups, the ethnicities. That's what's in view here. And that shows us something about the glory of heaven. All the varieties of colors that God has created are going to be present. So it's not going to be a city dominated by one ethnic group or majority. But the best from every nation will have a place in the new Jerusalem. And we will retain our ethnic and national identity, but not from a nationalist or patriotic standpoint or from a political one. We're not going to be waving the American flag in heaven. Here we are. No, that's not what's going to happen there. Okay? We won't be flying our country's flag. There'll be no more rivalries, no more uh, cultural superiority from one group over another. No, in this new creation, what do we know of it? The former things have passed away. God said, behold, I make all things new. And part of that new is that Everything right now in this present order that divides us and separates us and creates hostility among people groups and hatred and racism and all of those things will have been done away with. And nothing of the old order passes on into the new. This also tells me that the gospel will succeed in its mission. All of the nations will be present. Everyone that's supposed to be saved will be saved. And they're going to be there on that day in glory. Look at the third thing. Other than no temple or no need for sunlight or moonlight, John says that it's actually there no night. Verse 25, and its gates will never be shut, and there will be no night there. No night in the holy city. Again, that doesn't mean that we're going to have our Might not have our 24-hour cycle of day and night and the earth rotating on its axis and, you know, we have day here and then night later on. No, I don't think that's going to change. I believe that's part of the cycle of creation that God made. But what it does mean here is that John is borrowing language from a vision that the prophet Zechariah had. In which he says in Zechariah 14 that, that the coming of the Lord, there will be no day or night. And that what is considered nighttime is actually going to be flooded with light. Now, again, stick with the imagery here. Remember, these are symbols. These are metaphors. They mean something. They represent something. What's in view here? A city with walls and with gates. And specifically, we're told here that these gates are going to be permanently open. They're never going to be shut. So why bother have gates, right, if you're never going to close them? Well, in the ancient cities, right, it was important to close your gates at night. While it was daytime, really it wasn't necessary. You had sentries on the wall. They can look out. They're watching. They could see a threat from a great distance. If they needed to come down and close the gates, they could do that. But at night, every city closed their gates. Why? The enemy could creep in under the cover of darkness and sack the city or seize it. So that's why they would do that. But here, John is saying, it's never going to be night, always daytime, right? So a city like this one of incalculable worth, which could be, right, the envy of any enemy would want to enter the city to steal from it. Well, there are no enemies. There is no threat. There's nothing to worry about. Why? Anyone or anything that could have possibly threatened the security of the people of God in the city of God here are presently in the lake of fire. We've already seen that. So it's never night. It's always daytime from that perspective. And the gates will never be shut. Another reason they won't be shut, he says here in verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. What's happening here in view that these gates are never shut, always open, is because there is a continuous stream of people pouring into the holy city bringing the glory and honor of the nations into it. Who are these people? These are the redeemed people of God from all of the cultures of the world, the kings of the earth, bringing the best expressions of their culture, of their nations to be part of the holy city. I don't know what all of this looks like, but I reject the the lie, the myth, the stories we've been told that heaven is just a place we are just going to lounge around for all eternity like chubby little naked angels on a cloud strumming a harp. That's not heaven. Heaven's not a place where we're going to be idle and, and doing nothing. No, there's work. There's glorious work to be done there. Joyful work. Worship, that's an expression of worship unto God, which we'll see in a moment. God gave Adam a mandate to extend the garden to the whole earth. And now that paradise is regained, guess what you and I get to do? Extend the garden to the whole earth in a perfect, sinless world. These new heavens and this new earth. Humanity will be unleashed to its highest and fullest potential. Not even what Adam could have possibly realized, because things are different now. Whereas Adam was made perfect, but with the ability to sin, we will be perfected, and we will not be able to sin. Well, that changes the whole game. That changes the whole dynamic of this. In the sinless glory of the new heaven and earth, we will create, we will invent, We will enhance the world. We will develop things. But it won't be based on our sinful drive, right, to to try to create something for ourselves and to make a name for ourselves and to receive glory for ourselves. No, no, no. Everything we will do will be to add our glory to the glory of God, to give him glory. That's what's in view here. And it's something glorious. And I don't understand what all that is going to be, but we could see that. In these passages, we begin to get a glimpse of what this is going to be like. And the fourth thing he sees here is this. That also in the holy city, here's what's absent. Anything that is unclean. In this city, there's nothing unclean. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but all those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what's happening here. He's not saying that there are... Some people left out there, outside of this holy city, who are still sinners, who still reject God, and they're still in a state of rebellion uh, against God, right? That's not what he's saying here, and that somehow they're trying to enter into the city, but they're going to be kept out. No, there are no rebel holdouts in the new creation. No one's out there resisting the universal reign of Jesus Christ. No one's doing that. We already know where they are. Where are they? In the lake of fire. They've already been judged. They already gave account before God. They stood before the white, great white throne of God and were judged. And the verdict was rendered and the sentence executed. Right? What John is doing here is contrasting all of those people who are now presently in the lake of fire in this scene... Who worshipped the beast and, and bore the image and number of the beast. And rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who are therefore barred from entry into the holy city. He's contrasting them with the ones who can enter into the holy city. And the ones who can enter are the ones whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. They are the opposite of those that are unclean and who do everything that is detestable and false. They can Enter. This is important. Because if in your mind you're harboring any thoughts, perhaps, that, you know what, I, God's probably going to save everybody in the end. God's just not, you know, that's just, that's just cruel to think that God, that's going to people be in hell and in the lake of fire. Well, banish that thought because this tells us there are actually people who are not going to be entering into the holy city. Not everyone will be part Of the glories of the new heaven and the new earth. And we've talked about this already. It's the Lamb's book of life. It's not our book of life. It's the Lamb's book of life. And because it's His book of life, He's the one who determines the names that are written in it. We don't determine that. So how is one's name inscribed in this book? Well, chapter 13 tells us that the names written in the Lamb's book of life were written in there. From before the foundations of the world. Before the foundation of the world. Before God spoke a word, a word and the worlds came into being, names were already written. And on what basis would God have done that? Wouldn't he be writing the names of people who are sinners? Unclean people? People who are not holy? People who are in presently rebellious to God? Would he be writing their names there? On what basis would he do that? Well, On the basis that one day the lamb would do absolutely everything that was necessary to secure the salvation of all those whom he had chosen. Every single one. Everything he would do to make them clean and holy and perfect and fit for the holy city, the lamb would see to it. And on that basis, and on that basis alone, could one's name be written in the Lamb's book of life? There's no other way. There's no other way. So here, we come to this scene, and we, we've seen the glories of the new heaven and the earth, and what's not there? Nothing sinful. Nothing unclean. Nothing unholy. Nothing impure. Could you even imagine for a moment what life would be like that, in a place like that? where you would never lie again, would always be truth, where you would never be filled with anger or rage or hatred or be puffed up with pride or consumed by lust. What, What would a world like this look like? I can't even imagine that. I don't know if there's a moment in our day where anyone could say they've spent the whole day and have not thought something impure or wished something evil upon someone. But here, if you're in Christ, this is going to be proven true of you. Be totally clean, totally holy, totally pure, incapable of lying and stealing and hurting others. What a glorious time that will be. Because of what's not present in the holy city, we know that our eternal existence will be infinitely more exciting and glorious than anything you and I can imagine. With the presence of God everywhere and the glory of God illuminating the whole city and the culture and worship of all the nations being brought into it and the absence of everything unholy and sinful. But that's not all that John sees here. He does not just see what's not there. Now he sees what's central To the city, the hub of the city, the engine of the city, if you will. He sees what's there, central. Let's read Revelation 22 now, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, No longer will it be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. What a a beautiful picture here. These symbols that John is showing to us here, these pictures that he's seeing are ones that we are familiar with already in Scripture. They're symbols from the creation account. They're symbols uh, from Old Testament prophecies concerning the great last day's temple. And the first symbol that he sees here is this river of the water of life. And that river reflects the glory of God. We're told it's like crystal. An image we saw way back in chapter 4 in the vision scene of the throne where he saw a sea of glass like crystal before the throne of God. Now, there are several Old Testament prophecies that are in view here. One is the prophet Joel prophesying uh, of this glorious day of the Lord where he said in Joel 3, the the mountains will drip with sweet wine and a fountain will flow from the house of the Lord. What was Joel seeing? He was was seeing this great last days temple that John is now seeing. But more specifically, this, this imagery comes from the 47th chapter of Ezekiel. That whole last section of Ezekiel is this vision of this great last day's temple. An angel is taking Ezekiel throughout the entire temple mountain, showing him absolutely every facet of this temple, and it's being measured. But here in Ezekiel 47, now he, he sees this vision of a river beginning to flow out from before, uh, below the threshold of the door of the temple. And the further away that that river begins to flow out of the temple in the water, it's getting deeper and deeper. It's an ever-increasing, and ever-deepening, and ever-expanding river that's going out. And it's so deep that he has to swim to get across the river. He gets to the banks, and he stands on the bank, and he begins to look. And in each side of the bank, he sees trees, just an abundance of trees. This water keeps going forth, and everywhere that the water touches, life happens. It flows into the Dead Sea and it's transformed into fresh water teeming with life. And there's fruit trees in abundance with, all, with, with fruit that it produces each and every month. And its leaves, he says, are for healing. Ezekiel is getting a vision of this last day's temple that John is now seeing. The same thing flowing from before the throne, flowing from the temple of God, flowing through the middle of the street of the city. What is the picture here? Eternal life that's emanating from the throne of God. He's the source of eternal life. He's the source of the provision for eternal life. Provision of eternal life for God's people from God's sovereign throne. This river imagery goes all the way back to Genesis because it's found in the garden. We're told there was, there was a river that flowed from Eden, the mountain temple of God, to water the Garden of Eden. And in that garden were, were all sorts of precious uh, gemstones and minerals that we already saw were associated with the holy city, the New Jerusalem. They were present there in the garden. Now, here's a beautiful thing about this river. Two things I want you to see here. One, it's flowing through the middle of the street of the city. It's not often some far off area where you got to go. Get to it, it's central to the city. That means it's accessible to everyone. If you're in the holy city, you have access to the river of the water of life to drink from it. Also, it's a river, it's not a little stream. It's not like the drip from our kitchen faucet is dripping right now, even though it's off. It's not a little trickle of water. It's a river. It's a super abundant, ever-flowing source of eternal life for the people of God. I want you to get that imagery there. If you've ever been at the banks of a mighty river, you begin to get the point here. The second symbol he sees there is the tree of life. He sees it on either side of the river. It's the same imagery that Ezekiel was seeing in his vision. So he's borrowing this imagery to drive home this point that eternal life, heaven, is a return to Eden. It's a return to the garden. They are symbols, the river and the tree, that draw our attention to what is central to the new creation. God's provision of eternal life for his people. So It's what's promised to us and that's what we'll have. In the Garden of Eden, right? The tree was in the middle of the garden. Adam and Eve had access to it. As long as they could eat of its fruit, they would keep on living forever and ever. Now this tree is reimagined in John's vision. And the fruit it produces is absolutely remarkable. Look what it says here in verse 2. tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. Yielding its fruit each month. Have you ever seen a fruit tree Bear any other fruit than one single fruit? I don't know if such beast exists out there, but, right? This is no ordinary tree. Twelve kinds of fruit. My goodness, what a feast. And not only that, it yields its fruit each month. Well, every fruit tree I know only yields one kind of fruit and only in its season. We're trying to grow tomatoes right now. We got this little, little sprout that came up, and I'm just jumping for joy and hoping the thing lives, right? And at some point, maybe I'll get to eat one of those tomatoes if the squirrels don't get to it, right? But it's only going to yield one thing, and at that, only for a short season. And I hope I get to it in time. But here, 12 kinds of fruit every month of the year. I'll never go to one of the branches of the tree and find it empty. Abundant life, eternal life here. 12 kinds of fruit, 12 months out of the year. Again, that number 12. You can't avoid this, right? Why 12? Again, associating it back to everything we've seen before, right? 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 12 foundations, 12 gates. All of that, 144 cubits, the width of the wall, 12,000 stadia right? multiples of 12. All things that speak to the perfect and complete number of the people of God. That's what that number 12 symbolizes. Well, here, this 12, in regards to the tree of life, symbolizes the complete provision of unending eternal life for the people of God. Full and complete Leaves of which, again, barring the imagery from Ezekiel, are for the healing, he says here, for the nations. For the nations. That's why now, well, you can't have all ethnic groups together. There's a lot of hostility and hatred amongst the nations. But not here. The nations have been healed. They've been healed by the blood of the Lamb. And that's why he says, and nothing will anymore be accursed that curse that God pronounced upon creation as a result of mankind's sin is reversed in the new heaven and the new earth. That long winter that humanity has experienced from the fall to the day we're speaking about here is over. It's springtime for all eternity. Reversal of the curse and a return to Eden. Paradise regained. In every way, This garden is better than the first. It's better. Here's another thing that you won't find in the new Eden. There's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's no serpent. There's no temptation. There's no testing. That's all absent from the holy city. Thirdly and lastly. Lastly. What is central to the holy city is not just a provision of eternal life as amazing and as glorious as that is. But once again, John restates it. What's central to the holy city is the presence of God and the Lamb. What's at the center of this city is the throne. The throne of God. And it says here that we will worship and serve Him forever. Continual, unceasing worship And service to God, not in idle existence. That word serve is used of what the priests do. It's priestly work that we'll be engaged in. And every aspect of our service to God will be a direct expression of our worship to God. And look at the glorious promise here. He says we will be before the face of God. Before the face of God. We will see his face. And his name will be on our foreheads. Now we've talked about that name on the foreheads. And the imagery from the high priest who wore his, his headpiece that had a plate on it. And in it was inscribed the name of God. And he wore that as he went into the Holy of Holies. We're going to have his name. We are his possession. We are his people. But I'm consumed with that thought of beholding the face of God. What Adam and Eve experienced and lost. Again, Moses spoke face to face with God, and he desired to see the glory of God. He wanted to see the face of God, and he was prevented from doing that. It would kill him. It'd absolutely consume him. It's that scene from The Raiders of the Lost Ark at the end; like their faces would melt off. Like, how how could we behold the blazing glory and holiness of God? We can't. But here he's saying, somehow, in some way, we are going to behold him face to face. Because all throughout our time here, it's been mediated some way or another, his presence and his holiness and his glory. Most importantly and preciously, right through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we begin to get a glimpse of what it is to behold God. It's always been mediated, but now it's going to be unmediated. It's a fulfillment of what Jesus expressed on the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Because only the pure in heart, only the clean can do that. First John 3, 2 John, the apostle, same one who wrote Revelation, wrote this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we will see him as he is. We'll see him because we'll be like him, pure and holy. It's the ultimate expression of intimacy and fellowship and communion with God. Heaven is about God, brothers and sisters. Don't get caught up with the pearly gates and the gold streets and the you know river of the water of life and the tree of life. As awesome listen, as awesome as those things are. God is the glory of heaven. He's the best thing of heaven. Our eternal experience will be one in which all of our longings and desires will be perfectly and eternally satisfied by God. Because we're in the presence of God, we're seeing Him face to face. I don't know what that's going to be like, but I can't wait. What I do know is I'll never be disappointed again. I'll never experience dissatisfaction or discontentment. I'm not going to wish that heaven was something more than what it will be. I'll never want for anything ever again, and neither will you. God will completely captivate us for all eternity. All eternity. That's paradise. God is paradise. God is paradise. He's the best thing about the better. Eden. The last words John uses there. Captures the benefit of the blessing. Of living eternally in the presence of God. He says. And they. God's people. Will reign forever and ever. It's like Eden all over again. Man was made to rule over the kingdom of creation. That's what we'll do. But we're not going to screw it up this time. We're not going to mess it up. The first chapter of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, the bookends of the Holy Scripture reveal the purpose of God for the pinnacle of His creation. We will reign with Him forever and ever. We'll achieve the destiny that God had designed for us. We will live out our divine purpose. Reigning with Christ for all eternity. In the presence of God. Before the face of God. In the perfection of the glory of a paradise. Which is all of God. Isn't that awesome? I hope that excites you. I hope that motivates you. In that passage of 1 John 3 there. He goes on to say that everyone who has this hope. Purifies himself. Purifies himself. Makes himself holy as he is holy. This is meant to to, to motivate us in such a way to persevere in our Christian walk, brothers and sisters. Revelation has just been one thing after another, showing the people of God you are going to suffer in this world. If you are faithful to Jesus, I promise you this. The beast, the false prophet, Babylon, unbelieving humanity is going to be hostile towards you. But look up. Look to the holy city. Look to what's coming. Look to the glory, look to the rider on the white horse who's going to come with his flaming sword. And he'll vindicate the saints of God and then what? We will enter into paradise regained. How amazing is that? Do you long for that? Do you long to drink from the river of the water of life? Are you thirsty for it? To lay hold of the fruit of the tree of life? And receive those abundant provisions of eternal life before God. But more importantly, do you long to see the face of God? Do you long for that? I hope you do. There's only one way to enter the holy city. There's only one way to gain access to it you have to be clean. Nothing unclean will enter it. You can't buy your way into the holy city, you can't bribe your way into the holy city. You can't work hard enough or try to be good enough to enter into the holy city. There is only one gate that we pass through to get into the holy city. And that's through Jesus Christ. He's the door. It's through his blood. He's our only hope. He's your only hope. Enter in through the city. He's the only one who can get you there.